Welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show, Designers Discussing Design. We're on episode 55. What a revolting development. Uh, and so we have uh, myself, Sen, and special third host. We got Donnie in the house. I'm very excited about this. Uh, Donnie, uh, tell our listeners if they don't know a little bit about a podcast you do and what games you've been playing lately. Sure. Uh, I am one of three hosts of the Low Player Count podcast. We are a discussion-based podcast. We don't do reviews. We don't do product features or anything. We just talk about games, and in particular, we talk about games. Sometimes we talk about design. Sometimes we talk about stuff and mechanics and things uh, as they apply to solitaire and two-player gaming, which all three of us are big, huge nut job fans of. So that's that's sort of our wheelhouse. Um, and, and of that, have you been playing anything in the last week or two in that genre? Uh, I have, actually. I just got Tiny Epic Galaxies in the mail from Kickstarter, uh, courtesy of Gameland Games. And we love Gameland Games here, one of our sponsors. Got to give a shout-out. Big fan of Gambling Games, and I love Tiny Epic Galaxies. I love playing that game solo. I might like that solo better solo than I do with more people, which doesn't mean it's bad with more people. I just really like solo games, and it's a really fantastic solitaire experience. Absolutely. No, yeah. uh, I'm, look I'm looking forward to trying it out. Sen, have you tried that yet? Uh, yeah, I've tried it. I just uh, haven't got my copy of it yet, but I have played it. I do like it. It's, uh, it's a great game. I actually wanted to ask Donnie about that game... Uh, Seventh Continent? Is it Seventh mm, Continent? That's yes. the one that I, that's been interesting me lately in terms of solo um, because it's on Kickstarter, so I mm -hmm. see it in my feed all the time. Right. But have you actually played it, Donnie? I have not. Um, I, I have a tendency when I when I see something that just grabs a hold of me and sucks me in that I sort of immerse myself in it and I do all the possible things and find out all the possible information about it that I can. And uh, so I've kind of been doing that the last day or so with uh, Seventh Continent. I haven't had a chance to play it, but I am supremely excited about seeing it uh, manifest and come about and grow and actually become a real thing that I can play because that might actually be like the solitaire game I've kind of been looking for, um, sort right. of with that element of uh, exploration and discovery and survival. It's got crafting, so you can like craft stuff. It's got secrets to discover and That's stories really cool. to tell. Oh my goodness! It it's uh, it looks amazing. That does sound good. Uh, Sam, what have you been up to the last week? Well, I have a game due tomorrow for Z-Man. Ooh. So. I've been doing that. <laughs> it's actually not for Z-Man. It's for well, it's for it's for Z-Man. It's for uh, Pretzel Games. So it's the follow-up to uh, Flick 'Em Up. Um, so I've been working on that, just designing uh, lots and lots of variants. So we have a game that's been. It's actually pretty cool. They 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 made a new theme for it. So it used to be Junkyard, where it was just a. A, you know, a yard of junk that you made things out of. And Martin decided, oh no, it should be junk art. And so now it's actually 
revitalized us a little bit and saying, yeah, we could we could totally do it where you're going around from city to city and at different galleries and you have to compete at different galleries by making better art pieces than other people out of the junk that you have. That sounds and awesome. So, yeah, have, and, and it really has made... Have you seen the movie It was a French subtitled film. Knickknack? Mick Micmac. M I C M A C. Yeah. Cool. Is it about junk art? It is. Oh well, I'll have to, I'll definitely have to watch it now. That's awesome. Yeah, and, they, and they use junk also to pull off like a heist. It's awesome. Oh my god, that's even better. Like heist movies are my favorite type of movie ever. <laughs> Jay, I yeah, love that. Jay Micmac. I'm surprised yeah. Jay hasn't seen it to be honest. I I guess I'm guessing he actually has. I'm betting he probably has. Yeah. If it's French and it has uh, heisty stuff in it, then he'd probably have watched it. So I've been doing that. Um, been playing a lot, a lot of Steampunk Rally, uh, which is kind of a timely thing because we have on the show today um, Gavin Brown from Rocks the Game Labs, Laboratories. I'm not sure if he likes labs or laboratories. He'll let us know. Um, playing that a lot lately. I got Epic in the mail yesterday, so I've been playing that a lot. You like that? How does that? How's that been for you? Mm, you know, it's good with the kids because uh-huh. it's really simple play um, and everything is ridiculously epic, like 18-point damage creatures and things like that. So uh-huh. the boys love it. Um, hmm. The other thing I wanted to get it for is because I'm totally out of magic, like completely out of magic. I think the only thing I have left is like lands. And so uh, <laughs> the boys like magic, but I, I just can't buy back in. But I do want a cube draft. Um, and so I with love three... cube draft. Exactly, right? So with three containers of, of Epic, I can cube draft. Uh, it was that, or, or... See, at the time when I was... was When I kick-started that, I didn't know about Ashes. So yeah. it was that, you know, Ashes could have fit the bill fairly similarly for me. But uh, I know you you like Ashes quite a bit, right, Donnie? I do. I do like Ashes a lot. Um, it's It's... I, I love drafting. I love drafting Magic. I love playing uh, limited formats like that in Magic, and I love. I really liked that. And Ep- you're right. Epic and Ashes kind of hit my radar right about the same time, and um, you know, I kind of I went the other direction from you. I was like, eh, I was kind of like, uh, I'll pass on Epic. I liked Star Realms. Um, it, it felt very similar in terms of what they were trying to achieve, and I liked the the drafting and then the cube drafting. But then at the same time, I looked at Ashes. I just kind of ended up falling to the other side of the fence, and I just I love that you can draft with that game. I love that you can mix everything up and and actually have a a real draft experience. I think that's that's fantastic. Oh, somebody's asking us why no heist game. Um, well, I don't know. Uh, we've actually really wanted to try to make a heist game, Jay and I, uh, and we've come close a few times. And then, I've been working on a heist game forever with ease. Yeah, they just, just kind of fall apart. They take a um, while. Yeah. and uh, But, I mean, it might, it might be the idea of abstraction, that we have to actually abstract a lot of the, the nitty-gritty of a heist out of it in order to still feel like a heist. Um, and... <clears throat> One of the things that I'm finding more and more as I design more and more games is that sometimes going too sim, going to simulation of the actual event is the total wrong way to go. And by abstracting things, you can make it still have the feel and the flavor without the, um, as you know, Kevin Wilson would say, as a, without the roadblocks of the themes, the stop signs saying, no, you can't go that way. Um, so, yeah. Um, Daryl, what have you been playing lately? 
Well, I got to go to Grand Con this weekend. Right. So that was fantastic. I got didn't. See, that was not fantastic. Uh, actually, one of our guests that will be on uh, from Action Vase Game was there, and so it was oh, I didn't know Nick was there as well. Nick was there as well. Actually, and Big Mac, and they had a, a large team there, and so not only did they have Heroes Wanted, but they also had a sneak peek preview copy um, that was just successfully kickstarted on Ninja Camp. Right. So I was really excited to play that and really tempted to steal it because it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, I like Ninja Camp quite a bit. Yeah, and then, you know, and there was a variety of other fantastic uh, sponsors there uh, that had. Daryl just uh, crash on us, I think. So that was fun. Oh, there he is. Um, and then I also got to playtest some stuff. Um, one that I'm very excited about, still in the hush-hush, but I got to uh, work on a license for my first time, and I just pitched it to IDW, so I'm hopeful they might go for that. So I'm very excited about that one. Um, hopefully hear more in a couple weeks. Um, and then... Well, yeah, maybe we'll hear something more about that in the future. Yeah. And then uh, one of the things I'm really excited about is the Blue Jays. <laughs> It has nothing to do with board games at all. But. Sports ball! Sports ball, sports ball. Yes. I've waited 22 years to say that the, the Toronto Blue Jays have clinched the American League. So anyways, I got that out of my system. <laughs> I'm very excited. I, like, bought... Are we going to sing the song? I okay. bought too many hats. Blue Jays. Yeah, buddy. I don't, I don't have my Rangers ball. hat. Where's my Rangers hat? It's somewhere around. garbage oh, where it belongs. Uh, yeah, so anyways, I got that out of my system. <laughs> One viewer that might also like baseball. Uh, maybe Fabio is watching. Oh, uh, no, I didn't actually notice you had the postseason hat on. That's post-season. great. Postseason. I picked that up on Sunday's, at Sunday's game. So uh, At least uh, you're not a bandwagon fan. No, I've, I've been waiting 22 years. So uh, Were you but, actually alive when they last won? Yeah. What do you mean if I was alive? What do you think? I'm 20? You're like, what, like two? <laughs> Something like that. Anyways, talking about my... Uh, Youngness. We have a couple younger publishers that are not rookies to the scene. They're actually uh, taking the the industry by storm uh, totally. with some some very uh, successful Kickstarters. Um, but both do their businesses in slightly different ways, and so we want to pick their brains about how and why. Uh, they are publishing and developing games the way they do. So I want to welcome, we have Gavin Brown, who has been on the show before. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And we also have Nick Little from Action Phase Games. First time on the show. Yeah. I feel and like Travis. I've seen him on this before, though. Oh, no. He, we, we, had a... we, had, we had Travis on. Once. No, no, but we, Nick and I have done Google Chats before. That's right. Oh, and then yep. maybe, I yeah, just remember seeing you flashbacks. Little box. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So uh, why don't we start with uh, Sen? Do you want to start us off with a question? Sure. Um, Gavin, uh, I want to ask you this, because I, I don't think I've ever asked you this before. And, and Gavin and Daryl and I are friends from a long time back. Uh, Gavin is a member of the Game Artisans of Canada. In fact, one of the founding members, probably, right, Gav? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I was there and at the first meeting. Whoa. In, like, 1997? No. That's got to be old. No, 2008. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty old, and, long uh, time ago. Yeah. And uh, Gavin has been... Um, he was the artist for Jay and I, our, our first published game. Oh, um, I was so excited, too. And it, it's, I love it. I still love that game. Um, I was so excited. 
And Gavin is also a great designer in his own right. So Gavin did um, Jab, the real-time boxing game, and he's designed some other wonderful games that hopefully someday we'll see the light. But you've chosen to go the route of becoming a publisher, and why is that? Well, I don't necessarily consider myself a publisher, per se. Uh, like, Roxley, we consider ourselves kind of like a board game development studio that sort of releases, publishes its own products. And you'll see this kind of business model a lot in, you know, independent video games these days. So, right. you know, we're, we fancy ourselves kind of like that. You know, even in board gaming, you, you have, like, Plaid Hat Games, which just recently got purchased, um, but previous to that, they were doing all their own publishing and development. Um, I guess Hans and Gluck is another one. They're very uh, development-oriented. Um, that's kind of my vision is, you know, a small team, um, you know, developing our own stuff. Maybe, you know, if something's awesome that, you know, Sen or Daryl, you know, hands to us, um, then we would say sure, you know. Um, I'm looking at, I'm currently looking at a game by a, one of the game artisans, so, you know, we're not opposed to taking outside designs, but our, our, our challenges are not ideas, because we started as, you know, designers. Everyone that helps me is a designer, first and foremost, right? So, um, our, our primary goal is to make good games, and then, you know, whatever comes of that, let you know whatever comes of that good. So, are you hoping for a, are you hoping for a, a buyout from Z-Man or something? <laughs> no, no. Uh, but I'm, if it has enough zeros, you are. <laughs> no, that is definitely. I mean, I like. I really like the. I I, I kind of romanticize with the idea of having like a handsome glow, which I don't think they're owned by anybody, are they? Like I think they're independent. No, they're they're like, indeed. That's kind of like I'm. I'm totally not. You know, I'm not really in it for the money or the fame or nothing. I just want to. My primary goal is to make good games, just because I'm. I'm passionate about. I've You're 100 the artist. Yeah. He is the artist. Very much so. <laughs> not the rock star. Very talented. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Why well, I, I gotta bounce this question then back off uh, on Nick because obviously action phase game has some similarities but some differences. Can you talk us through how Action Phase is functioning? Like, you're obviously listening to get games, but you've also designed games yourself. So maybe give the big picture for everyone listening. Sure. Yeah, we started off uh, designing a game. My partner, Travis, uh, started by designing a game, and I helped him develop it, and we sold it to uh, another company, Mercury, and... They, we probably would have handled things differently with that game if we knew what we were doing, but it was kind of like a, an introductory into the, into the industry. And our second game, Heroes Wanted, we knew from the get-go that we wanted to publish it. We thought it was going to be a huge hit with superheroes in the market, and we thought we could do a good job showing our design chops with it. So uh, we knew from the very beginning that that was going to be all us, and we worked hours and hours. We probably worked on that full-time, you know, probably 60 hours a week between the two of us for a whole year. Um, in addition to you know learning how to actually become a publisher and run a Kickstarter and do all the parts of that part of the industry, which was continued to be a learning process throughout the Kickstarter and afterwards. So you you know once you figure all that stuff out, then you kind of know how to publish a game, and it just comes back to doing it again. And the second game that we did was a, I mean it was really an expansion to 
Heroes 1, and so it was really following the, the manufacturing process again while still sort of building on the initial design. So it wasn't as much or as heavy as a design, but then we knew that we wanted to start publishing other people's games. Our second actual title was our game, uh, but our third and our fourth titles, the Ninja Camp, was a game that we had played a couple years prior that was a friend of ours that had designed it, and he hadn't really pushed it at all. It was on a print-and-play, I think, through uh, Game Crafter, I think. Um, but we changed it substantially from there. We changed a couple of mechanics, and we rethemed it and got it all new art um, and launched that. And then we are launching a game by Daniel Solis, well, it was originally a game by Daniel, and we played that game, Kiki, and there were a couple of qualms that we had with it, and we, we knew that, because development is my strong point in particular. I'm not really Absolutely. the design guy. Travis has a million ideas. Like, Travis, yeah. my partner. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, is the guy that has a gazillion, which means that I don't have to come up with any ideas. No, so. you, just make them, you just make them better. Yeah, exactly. So we were able to evolve Kiki into Kodama, and it's... It's the same principle, but the game is way more fleshed out to use a, I don't know, a term. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's got more theme to it, and it's got more gameplay to it, and I think that everybody that likes Kigi will, will love Kodama, especially with yeah. the, the uh, Just to throw, it, throw in a comment, uh, I didn't get to play it at, uh, at uh, Grand Con, but uh, Bearded Meeple, uh, who's a big uh, supporter of our show, who's going to be one of our regular hosts, um, it raved about it, and he's played both games. He said that everyone will love the changes that you just made the game better. Uh, yeah. So he raved about it. He's really excited about that one. He said actually that was his favorite. I believe his favorite game of the con. So that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, so high praise to that. Uh, but Sen, you have a question? Okay, I can go back then. Um, so Nick, let's talk about that development. What does that mean to you? What do you add to the process that? you know, a designer can't do themselves? Um, I, I'm not going to say that designers can't develop, because I certainly don't believe that's the case, and I have designed a couple of games that I've went on to also develop, but I think that they're, it, it's typical of the person who is creative enough to come up with the start of a game that necessarily they don't want to get bogged down in the minutiae that is most of development, because most of development is playtesting and polishing and figuring out what you think is wrong, and you often need a second set of eyes to look at a game. You know, it's one of those things where you guys, I'm sure you've written rule books before, where you know you write, read a rule book ten times and you just don't see what's wrong with it anymore. So it's like that with your game. If you've spent a hundred times playing this game, you don't see what's wrong with it, and then somebody else comes in and they see and they go, "Well, this could be a little bit different, or this could be better, or this could be better," and stuff that maybe you had in initially and you changed and you just never went back, or or whatever the case may be. But it's it's those times. I was talking to somebody this weekend, I don't remember who it was, and they were saying that maybe a developer's name should be on the box, because it's always the designer's name and never the developer's name. And they said, you know, they'll have somebody come up to them and say, I loved this game. And and they'll say to the designer, I love this game. And it's like, it's great that you love this game, but the reason that you can actually play this game is because somebody <laughs> developed it to the point where it functions as smoothly as it should. Mm. And oh, that's I believe the reason that. you... Yeah, and that's, I mean, obviously, you need a designer, that's for sure. But, like, there are some games that they would just be so much messier and floppier if there wasn't a designer in there to come in and clean it up or expand or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, I think having a developer is huge. And you'll see that that's one of the big flaws, I think, with Kickstarter games. That When you see a Kickstarter game that doesn't work well, it's usually because they don't have a developer. It's somebody that designed it and they wanted to make it themselves and they never that had is, somebody go. spot on. Spot on. Yeah. So, let, let me ask this. Um, 
I am in the process of trying to be a something of a designer, and I've done uh, a fair amount of work on various projects. I, my tendency is I tend to I tend to exist a lot in my own head, and when whenever I find myself you know with downtime or something, I'll do a lot of stuff. I guess I guess what I'm trying to ask without taking up too much of the space here is how much of how much of the design or even development work do you do in your headspace and how much of it do you have to do like physically uh, with with actual like prototype pieces or paper or scratch pad or something like that like is is I guess from my perspective I do have a lot of them in, in my head and I probably should do it more physically out on the table and do you ever find that stuff that you've just kind of come up with in your brain works or is it usually require a lot more I don't know if this is even a good question I, or not. I can I can respond to that. Sure. Um, I I believe that I you know I used to believe that you could you know just do a lot of it in your head, and then I realized that I wasn't getting enough accomplished. It was a lot of failure. The more I thought about it in my head without prototyping, the higher likelihood it would it would fail, and the more devastated I would be. Um, but I do believe that um, you get, you actually, it's like almost like a skill. Game design, a lot of game design I find is figuring out what things don't work. You're, you're, there's inf infinity things that don't work and some things do work. So by prototyping and creating a physical prototype, you can easily say, okay, that doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. As long as you're keeping it, the prototype as basic and as simple as possible, and that was another one of my big problems early, early oh, really? on. <laughs> like I was ridiculous. Like, you were, I was like look at my finished game. Put right, it on the table. It's like art. totally non-functional. Right. And then I was just like, okay, I'm gonna go kill myself. <laughs> but <laughs> then, now it's like you know, it's clean and uh, you know, not attractive, but it's well laid out. But it's really just a white piece of paper with like squares and, and stuff on it and simple, very simple iconography. But I believe that um, it's all about iteration. Even even late stages uh, and development is certainly all about iteration, but even design, like man, you gotta get it on the table, you gotta figure out if there's a soul there, right? You gotta figure out what, is there anything fun? Is there anything innovative in this? And the, law, the more you think about it in your head, you can't you, f you feel like you can simulate all of these decisions and everybody else's decisions and how things will pan out, but there's so many variables and it's so complex that mm -hmm. it usually doesn't work. I mean, I'm going to follow this up with Nick because I think this is a great question. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, uh, what do you expect from designers? How many times are you hoping that they've iterated, iterated, and then how many times have, maybe looking at your past projects, that you have had to iterate, iterate, iterate through the development process. Give people a bit of a realistic picture. I mean, it would be great if you got a game and you thought we thought it was done. Um, but I think that, and, and, and Daryl and Sin, you guys both kind of developed to a certain point where then it's from that point on, the publisher can take it in whichever direction they want. So even if we saw a game that was totally done, somebody else comes to us and they're like, this game is totally done, and we played it and we're like, it's awesome. It's It's not necessarily going to be done for each publisher because, I mean, each publisher not just has an opinion of whether the game's done or not, but, like, for example, we're a Kickstarter-based company, so there are certain things that we're going to want to add to the game. Even if we think it's, you know, good enough to be done, we're going to, you know, try and make sure that 
it'll do well on Kickstarter. So maybe we have to tweak the theme or we have to like come up with, you know, individual player powers that we have to add, or we have to like make sure that there can be, you know, stretch goals for it. Um, but when I, you know, when I see a game, like I try to figure out if there's something interesting behind it, if it's a fun game. And then from that, the, in the recent past, we've gone back to the designer on games that we liked but we knew we were nowhere near done, and given them notes and, and had them come back to us so that we could look at it from there. And sometimes it's not done still, and you give them more notes, but, like, we don't sign anything unless we know that, like, we are going to do the rest of the development or it's done or whatever the case may be. So, I mean, we played Kigi a bunch of times, and we were like, it still has these things that we don't really like about it. So, and they weren't huge things, and Key's been printed in four different languages. Thousands of people own that game. So obviously it's not something that's massively wrong with it. It just didn't something, wasn't something that fit our brand. We wanted it a little more substantial. So until we figured out these key issues, we didn't want to sign it. So we worked with Daniel on it and made some tweaks here and there. And eventually we got to the point where we were like, yeah, this is a great game. We just need to iterate the last part and get done with everything. But this, the game is there. We've solved whatever qualms that we had with the game. We have figured out solutions to so to answer your question, I mean, yeah, I would love uh, to be handed a turnkey game that somehow also appealed exactly to our brand. You know, um, it seems unlikely, but it would be great to get a game that's near that point and we could look at it and go, this is probably 100 hours worth of development away. Um, People, so. you've heard it here. Finish the game, make it action face style. They're looking for it. <laughs> we are. Yeah, I mean the the percentage chance that, that that's going to happen is is rare though, right? I mean like so I've I've helped to pitch a bunch of games from designers to action phase that we know Travis will like thematically and we know Tra and that Tra Travis and Nick will like mechanically and it's still taking days and hours of development time even when we know what they like. Um, because that's, I think that's just game design. I mean, like Gavin always says, it's an emergent process, right? That the game comes out of iteration, the game comes out of playtesting, and everybody that puts their finger on the game can add a little bit to it that makes it just that little bit better, and I think better games come out of it. But the question that I have um, from the audience, Dave Thomas asked, isn't development the job of the publisher? Is it the, the, job of the, the hidden job of the publisher? And I know Action Phase is a publisher, Roxley doesn't consider themselves a publisher. You're more like an art house, a design house, an incubator style of model. Don't you? Th do you think that you're handing turnkey stuff over to a publisher, or is that what you'd like to do, or do you think they're going to further develop stuff? Um, I per like Roxley per like we personally, we have a huge expectation from the designers that we sign on, and I. I absolutely believe that I should be in helping the development process, but that's that's one way we're lucky in that you know we are in Calgary. There's all these Calgarian designers that are quite skilled, um, so I can meet with them and you know give them feedback um, based on what I believe their game needs and how it can become more marketable. Um, they can take that feedback or or not and a lot of the time I'm not even correct right like um, what what I think matters is the amount of passion um, that some that a designer has for a specific game and how much and how much they fight you 
and how how well they can defend their decision, their design decisions, right? So, like with Jab, you know, it, it's kind of like not a failure, but you know, it's definitely not a, a big hit, right? And it's it's it doesn't even have a good board game geek score. Um, but I I'm very I'm still very proud of that game um, because I put so much time into the development of it and you know Michael Mendez and Seth they like Seth is an amazing developer from Tasty Minstrel Games like totally awesome smart guy and they came to me and said you know uh, so we think that this has got it I'm like no well okay what about you know we, we tested it and this I'm like no like I all of those things like as a designer, I've turned over all of those stones. I've lifted them up and looked underneath, and it's not as good. So it depends on how much of an artist, I guess, and how obsessive the designer is. That would be my answer. <laughs> That's good. Um, who's next? I think Nick. No, oh, Donnie. Donnie, you're next, right? Yeah. So I was going to ask Nick as a as a development as a developer. Uh, this is a Another audience question we have, David Tome asks, um, what, what is the biggest don't for someone approaching you with a game design, maybe at a con or at, a, at, a, at an event or something? Um, I guess I'm going to answer the negative to your question here. I would say the biggest, th the best thing to do is to be open-minded and have a positive attitude, know your game, and and pitch it well. And when I say pitch, I don't mean like a salesperson trying to sell me on your game. But, you know, be tell me about your game and describe it and what you think is important. And then, you know, we'll go from there and, you know, I'll play it or I'll look at it or whatever. But definitely be open to feedback because it doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the industry. I think other people's opinions are important and you should kind of look at it to get another person's angle. Because you may have pitched 20 games to other companies and signed all of them with other companies, but you pitched to, to our company and maybe you've pitched to established companies that aren't Kickstarter-based and stuff like that and they can afford to do certain things and I'll sit there and I'll tell you, this is why we can't do it because it needs this or this or I'd say, we can do this if we can figure out a way to make it sellable for Kickstarter and do this and the other. So it, it helps to know the audience that you're selling to. So A, you know, be open-minded, be aware of feedback, but then, you know, obviously feedback a lot of times you have to take with a grain of salt yeah, especially when it comes from playtesters or people that are just kind of looking at your game because you should know your game better. But know your game really well, be enthusiastic about it, and, you know, be positive during the, the whole thing, you know, because nobody wants to sit there and listen to I mean, you've never gone somewhere and had a mopey salesman try to pitch you something. You're not going to buy it unless you absolutely need it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So have information for them, you know, and, and, and give them all the information they need and just try to be as cooperative as you can, I would say. Great advice right there. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn us slightly on our topic and and bounce this one back to Gavin. Both of you have been very successful on Kickstarter and have used that uh, to, for your games. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, how you were successful using Kickstarter. You know what what was the the magical formula? And, and then second of all, uh, where do you see Kickstarter going? And I'm gonna I'm gonna bounce that to Gavin first. Well, um, in terms of our success, I really don't have. You're gonna you're gonna be humble, so just don't go there. I, I've already <laughs> bragged for you. Our audience believes me. I'm a host. Just just go with it. Just I do, it. Okay. I don't really uh, have a secret. I just all I all I 
all I've done is really um, treat try to treat backers how I would want to be treated as a backer. Like so, I just put myself in the backer mentality, and like, what do I want to what do I want to see in this campaign? Uh, and then kind of just you know go from there um, and just work as hard as we can. And do you mind uh, like, pointing to a couple of like, examples? Sorry, a couple. Point to a couple examples you use for steampunk okay. rally. Okay, so I, I, I mean, we, like, so an example, you know, I I like getting, uh, I like getting, ever since I've been into video games, because I'm a video gamer, right? I cannot stand when they they tell you like Blizzard, you know, it's it's really hard being a Blizzard fan, or you know, uh, like a Half Life fan, you know, when's the next Half Life coming, or when's the next Duke Nukem coming? You know, they always say when it's done. You know, <laughs> never. Like Half Life was like infinite. Half Life Two was like infinitely delayed, right? So I was like, man, like the most important thing is we. I want to hit our like I want to hit our deliverable target. Like that is like of paramount importance to me. And so that was one thing. And then another thing is, um, I, I always liked. I always like having that date. Of when something is going to be accomplished. Um, so I've done a lot of graphic design work in my life, and I've done a lot of like freelancing. You and can't I found tell. that in bigger in bigger uh, contracts that clients, the most successful contracts I've had is even if like nothing is happening, the client likes every certain amount of time they like to hear, "Hey, I you know nothing has happened." So we you know we scheduled an update. Whether it was we were basically telling them we're picking our noses waiting for something or not, two weeks, like, boom, two weeks, we we send out an update. And on that update, it's got a bunch, because people love, you know, leveling up bars in, like, it's proven, you know, like, all the gamification stuff even um, coming out of the internet is, like, people love watching themselves level up in some way. So we wanted to show the... These these backers like, hey man, the project is leveling up. So all of these bar, there's all these bars for all of our deliverables, and every two weeks, like a bar is like inching up, and it shows the percentage, and the percentage is higher than last week. So all of these bars that start at zero, they look like they are progressing in some way, but we're giving them an easily consumable visual, um, you know, image of how far it's progressed. So they can just look at this like list of bars. Okay, the graphics are almost, you know, they're eighty percent. Last week they were sixty. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, close the email, right? Or if they don't care, you know, they don't look at it. But the ones that do care, I wanted them to be able to consume the status report as fast as possible. So that I mean that was more the managing of our campaign. In terms of like designing for Kickstarter. I don't. I would never like. Um, I would never take a game and say, and this is just our style. I'm not even saying it's wrong to do differently. Um, I would. I would never take a game and say, look, we have to change it so it matches Kickstarter. Like, man, that's your baby. That is your. You know, I, like Super Motherload, for example, is my is my game. I chose not to kickstart it because I was like, man, I don't think it's Kickstarter compatible. Like, it's it's got like a sci-fi theme. Which oh meh, 
you know, like some people, some people like it, but the majority of the market, they don't really care that much, right? About sci-fi, they're not blown away by a sci-fi mining game. Uh, the the mechanics are like it's very very polished and very strong game, but none of that stuff is really marketable to the Kickstarter audience. Like none of the visuals were like mind blowing or anything. It's just a really solid game. So that unfortunately is not a marketable product on Kickstarter because it has to have some kind of it has to have some kind of innovative product design. What about this game is innovative or marketable like that I can tell you in five seconds, right? Rather than just is it a good game? Yeah, what's so, the what's the presence? So it's more like you know with Steampunk Rally, I'm like okay, well people love Steampunk and you know people you know we it's got 108 dice in it, so these are marketable things that I can sell to the Kickstarter community. So I would you know pick and choose uh, which projects that I believe would be successful on Kickstarter, and then put those on Kickstarter rather than just trying to change things to make it go to Kickstarter compatible. Right. So let, let's go on that tangent, because that is what Nick and Action Phase have to do in order to make things viable for them, is a game has to be kickstarter bowl. What makes a game kickstarter bowl, Nick, to you? Uh, well, there are a lot of different things, but I think that you need a theme that people can latch on to and want to support. Um, I think that you need really good art, um, you need interesting gameplay, and then you need reviewers who will help you broadcast that from the mountaintops. And miniatures. Uh, you need miniatures. <laughs> yeah, we've never done that. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> we haven't either. So. Yeah, that's super next level. <laughs> that's Don't give in. Stuff. Don't yeah. do it. We had a game that we were playing to put miniatures in, but I'm not sure it's got a little It's paused. But, I mean, people, like Evan said, people love dice. Like you said, people love miniatures. You know, these are very common hit Kickstarter hits. Also, if you can get a game that's really easy to stretch goal into really interesting things, that'll do really well on Kickstarter. So if you can look, like when we did Heroes Wanted, like there are so many hero cards in the base game that it, we, we didn't know how well we were going to do. And we had planned for, I think it was something like 20 cards in the base game, and we knew where a stretch goal would get us to 24 or 28 or whatever. We ended up with like 36 hero cards, and we upped the amount of villain cards in the base game and quirks and, and everything. So if you have a game like that that's easy to expand in that way, then that, that goes really far because people go, oh, if we just get another four grand, you know, we get another four or five heroes, or we get added stuff to a promo pack. So another game that would do well is a game that you can add promo pack material to. Another thing that, that sells really well on Kickstarter is if you can make a upgraded or deluxe version of something, because Kickstarter people want it, they're completionist for the most part, they want to have everything. So, you know, a lot of Kickstarter backers are looking for exclusives, and a lot of people then, like, secondary, like when it gets actually retail, people will get mad if they can't get the exclusives. But if you make a deluxe version of the game and then you have the deluxe version of the game that you can sell, maybe not in retail, but online or at cons or whatever, then it still allows those people who want the best version of the game to just go to your website and grab it or come by your booth and grab it. So it's something that helps sell really well, especially where we are, because we're, we're, we've kind of launched with our last two games this small box line of games where the goal is to have a $20 price point and have a substantial play experience in half an hour to 45 minutes. So in order for us to hit that $20 margin, we have to like design around this sort of idea of what this price point is. And But 
you can get the people on Kickstarter will pay more for all the bells and whistles. So it allows us to add like expansion or slight, you know, add on material to it and make it a $25 game or $28 game or whatever, but have all these like upgraded bits, et cetera. So people like that's like that stuff a lot. But I mean, for example, we have a game that, you know, we have been play testing, but there's just, there's just no stretch goals in it. You know, like there's, here's the game. This is what it is. It's cool. But like beyond making the components thicker or, you know, upgrading here and there, there's just no more to it, you know? So it's hard for us to take a game like that and do that. I mean, that could change two years from now, a year from now, we might say, oh, well, we know this game's going to cost X dollars to make, and we have that because another campaign did really well, or, you know, Heroes Wanted sales are doing great, so we can we can go ahead and print this thing. But, like, I have a, a game that I designed that I have another company is releasing because it's a party game, it has no theme, it has virtually no art, so it will not sell well on Kickstarter. Like, traditionally, it would not sell well on Kickstarter. Sometimes those things catch on and sell really well anyway, but it would be a risk for us to take on this project. And also, it's something that has, like, a inside the box is a very specific tray, and it has components, so it's not something that we would feel safe going, we need to make 10000 of this thing to get it down to the right price, and we can't look at it and go, oh, yeah, we'll sell 10000 So I've you know licensed it to a company that can say that. They can go, oh, yeah, we have the reach for this and the marketing, and this is right in our wheelhouse. So. Oh, yeah, that's with R&R, right? Yep. Yeah, cool. So um, jumping on, talk, talking about stretch goals here for a second, uh, I want to go back to Gavin. Um, Steampunk Rally had had a fair few number of stretch goals, and um, I was, I'm, my question is this, when you, when you go into a Kickstarter project, how do you approach uh, stretch goals, especially ones that involve uh, game development? It, did, you, did you launch Steampunk Rally knowing all the various inventors that you were going to include in that box uh, that were a part of stretch goals, or were the, was that added development that you hadn't quite done yet? Yeah, that was, uh, we, I mean, I think we had seven to start off, and I don't, like, I, I think we, re, we, we felt that um, we could design content for these um, these inventors, but it was, none of it was, and we didn't actually put what they you know, we didn't actually post images of what they did or what their cards were. Mm-hmm. The art wasn't even done until afterwards. So we just said, hey, we actually were running contests for the for the inventors. Like, hey, which inventors do you guys want to see in this game? We want to we want it to be uh, have a lot of diversity um, with both culture and like gender and stuff. Um, yeah. that was very important to us. So we. Um, so we had a couple contests on Board Game Geek, um, and we we basically came, you know, we we researched their history, and we thought, you know, how can we? We're we're pretty fortunate with, you know, how uh, well how well this game that Orin has created, um, how well that it that you can slot a single card into the game, that is a stretch goal. That, that is a variable player power um, that is interesting and it and it's thematic right like um, if the if von Zeppelin for example you know he ran the the Zeppelin corporation for a very long time and uh, you know the Hindenburg was was uh, was one of his inventions or products if you will or or his companies so you know his 
his machine is the, is or his starting card is this little dirigible that every turn it must proceed one space. It can't stop, right? So it was it was thematic. Like we're lucky that that was possible to. So we look at their history and we injected some of the some of the history into those stretch goals. So we were just fortunate in that way. And then in the other aspect, like you know, the translucent dice and the metal cogs, those were sort of pre-designed as, you know, the translucent dice we didn't actually think was possible um, with our manufacturer that we were looking into. They were like, well, it's going to cost like 10, you know, the cost of the game is going to be like $20 a copy or whatever. So, okay, so we're not, you know, we were actually worried that can we even do non-translucent dice? Can we even do... Like, or do we have to include like 30 dice in the game? But then we found a manufacturer that could even do 108 dice. And then after, you know, we're like, when we had enough people, we went back to them and said, okay, what if we do like this many games? Like, if, what if we do this big of a print run? We said, okay, well, I can, I can do it for X amount, and that was within the budget. You know, we ran all the numbers, but that was within the budget, and people were obsessively asking about translucent dice like every day. Every day there was like 20 comments asking for translucent dice as a stretch goal. And so we were just, you know, sorry, no, but we were logging the request. And then so we did whatever we could to say, okay, we we like this stretch goal because it's going to it's going to improve the aesthetic of the game for the backers. It doesn't affect any content. And so we we got a quote and it worked out so then we said hey look translucent dice everybody yeah it was just kind of fortunate actually that we could even do it yeah absolutely well I mean Gavin you transitioned this perfectly because I want to continue this discussion of the the logistics of managing the manufacturing and the shipping and all those details that are happening behind the scenes and I can also attest before um, I asked my question to Nick, um, to the love for translucent dice. I remember actually vividly seeing so much reaction over those dice that I started designing <laughs> a game with translucent dice on purpose, and that became my stained glass window game just because nice. people loved it so much. I'm like, i got to make a game with translucent dice. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But i I gotta, I got to jump to Nick. Tell us a little bit about like the behind the scenes. Do you do all the the connecting, or do you work through an agent? How like how does that all work for especially an ignorant designer like myself, where at best I might interact, you know, with you, but there's no way I'm I'm getting even farther behind the curtain. What's what are all those balls that you're juggling back there uh, to actually get a game made? Well, as far as the logistics go, I mean, we have to figure out what what's going to be in the game, what we think is best to put in the game, and then I send out a what's called an RFQ, a request for quote, to our manufacturer. Now, we have somebody that we trust now, and I pretty much just send it to him. Now, it, the person I use is a broker, and what that means is that he goes to several other... He knows a lot of manufacturers in China, so he'll go to all the factories, he'll run the, the RFQ past all of them, and then he'll give back to me the lowest number that he got from those companies. And, and all of those factories he's worked with you know, for years, so he knows that they all have good quality, and we know to trust him at this point from how many times we've worked with him. And when Is that typical? Like working with a broker, or what, what are you finding in the industry? Is that kind of a new thing? Is that... 
Those they've been around for a long. I mean, people have been brokers for a long time, um, and it all depends on who you go with. I mean, a lot of people new to the industry, or even a lot of people that have been around for a long time, will use Panda. I mean, Panda is is basically the name brand. Everybody knows who Panda is. Everybody knows that you're going to get great quality with Panda. Um, so a lot of people use Panda. Um, because a lot of people use Panda, they often have longer lead times than other companies. So often, we because we have a rep here in Indianapolis that is a great guy. We've met with him several times. We see him at all the gaming cons. His name's Fabian. Um, and we met with him initially when we were looking for manufacturers, and we got a quote from them. And the lead time was longer than we knew was necessary. We knew we could handle because our first Kickstarter ended in March. We got all our ducks in a row by the end of the month, but we needed the game back by Gen Con or we were going to have a real problem on our hands. And Fabian just straight up told us at Gen Con, he said, if you would have gone with us, there's no way you'd have your game right now. So it was really good that we didn't. Now we had some problems with our first manufacturers, so we could have paid a little more and gone with Panda and known we would have had a great a great product, but it it's one way or the other. You know, like some people will use one, some people use the other, some people use you know a company and then go, well, I'm never using them again, or I would like to test the market. I mean, I know other more established manufacturers that or publishers that they'll just send out quotes to ten different companies and see who comes back with the lowest one, and they'll go with them. So, but once you get the quote back, then and usually I get a quote for, I usually get a quote for the minimum of what we would make at a minimum quantity, and then I get a quote at what would be the best version of the game if we hit all of our stretch goals for it, the most quantity, and then at a higher quantity, and I see like sort of the, the breakdowns in between so that I know that, hey, if we go this, and if we go to 20,000, I know that we can make this part in the middle here. If we go to 25, we can make it a little bit more, and that's where the stretch goals kind of make themselves apparent where you go, okay, well, we can turn this into a meeple here because we'll be saving $0.05 cents per unit, and the meeple costs $0.05 cents per unit, so it'll, it'll, it'll be the same cost for us, but it'll improve the quality of the game, and people love you know, a random meeple here and there. So that's, I mean, and then on our end, you know, once you get through the Kickstarter and you figure out what all is in the game, then you have to have it all, sh after it's made, you have to have it all shipped, and then shipping, you have to have it all fulfilled for a Kickstarter. So there's a lot of logistics stuff to go into, and it's usually pretty boring, uh, but you, you seem to like it. I I don't mind it. I mean, it's a lot of like kind of bookkeeping and communication stuff, and it's 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 neat when you can find ways to save yourself money. But I mean, that's kind of all you're doing. You're not playing games all the time. You're you know uh, in spreadsheets and comparing costs and organizing people's information so you can upload a spreadsheet to send all the the games to people and then. You know what happens in the postal service. Some stuff gets there and some stuff doesn't. So then you have to field all these emails from people who didn't get their games that you want to apologize for something that isn't really your fault, but you still feel bad that they didn't get their game yet. Um, but really, it's sitting in a warehouse somewhere. But, or, or they're missing one green disc. Right. <laughs> I it wasn't since, even a disc. <laughs> since the Steampunk Rally fulfillment started, I've apologized to somebody... 30 to 40 times per day probably like there's well, a lot Canadian. of there's a lot of apologizing going on yeah i'm sorry i apologize i'm sorry you're sorry gavin yeah there's a, it's, it's painful <laughs> so gavin speaking of apologizing to people <clears throat> and being canadian what's shipping like from canada what what have you what have you learned about the shipping industry from kickstarter that you can tell the audience 
in order to maybe save them some pain, whether they're Canadian or not? Uh, well, we had all our games come into our fulfillment service in the United States, PSI, and then from there, our Canadian stuff went up to Snakes and Lattes and out to the Canadian backers from there. And in the United States, they went to Amazon. So from our warehouse to Amazon, and then Amazon shipped them all, shipped them all out. And um, Snakes and Lattes, I would say, like, they win. Like, you give them the spreadsheet, they say thank you, the games appear in people's hands. That's it. That's right. all you and do. That's, that's really all you want. That has right? a lot. That has a lot of value for a publisher. Like, I talk to some of these other um, fulfillment agencies. And I'm just like, I just don't. I just don't want to. I don't have the time. And I, you know, I don't. I, this is not my skill set. And and I can't do anything. All I can do is be a professional emailer. Oh, you don't have your game. Okay, well, let me email somebody, and then I will. E they'll email me back, and then I'll email you, or have them email you directly, and figure out where your game is or what's wrong. Because I have no idea, and I can't figure it out, right? So, the, you know, a fulfillment service that can take like they just say, "Look, trust us. Like we got this," and then they do got it. Like, man, that is like. Epic. That is epically valuable for a publisher, in my opinion, especially an indie publisher that is only consists of a few bodies, right? So, um, you know, we could have went with Amazon, probably a little bit cheaper than than Snakes and Lattes for Canadian fulfillment, but you know, the the amount of pain that Snakes and Lattes has saved us is just awesome. You know, with Amazon, like in the states, dirt, like it is so cheap. I, I don't even actually understand how it's possible. Like, you know, I now understand why all the Kickstarters are, like, free shipping in the States. Because, you, you know, it's like, including, um, to ship a, a game, including all the packing material and the shipping cost is, like, $6.80 to ship a game anywhere in the United States. Obviously, you have to pay for drayage from you know, from the port to the manufacturer to your fulfillment center, then drayage to, you know... That's like a really fancy word, Gavin. What does that mean? It mean drayage means uh, it's a t specific type of freight that is ground freight from the port to wherever the product is going. Right. So fancy. I learn something yeah. new every day. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Keep going, so Gavin. Sorry. Pay for all that crap, right? But then... Uh, but it's not crap, it's drayage. Yeah, you have to pay for the drainage. And then, uh, but then other than that, it's, it's, it's very inexpensive. Yeah. So, Sorry, I've been, I'm babbling on and on. That's all right. <laughs> so once, uh, jumping over to Nick, once you uh, have your game out to backers once you're through fulfillment it's it's in everybody's hands that supported you through Kickstarter um, how does the process change from uh, from one where you're you're fulfilling and sending out that game to now you're supporting it after the fact on retail shelves and and getting people interested in what's the, what's the process change for you well we have again we rely on a broker here to warehouse the product and then to 
get it to distributors. So, and our broker will get all of our uh, marketing material to all the publishers or not to the distributors rather uh, to make sure that they have it in the magazines, GTM, you know, etc., so that it goes out to game store owners so that they can see our game and see you know why it's popular. Um, and then you need you know there's some amount of marketing that needs to be done, but it's really hard to tell in this industry what is hits, you know, like what, where your marketing dollars should be spent. The main philosophy that we have gone with is to go to lots of cons and try to talk to as many people as possible and try to talk to as many retailers as possible. So we're going to end up going to, I think, 11 or 12 cons this year, and two of those will be specifically retailer cons. So we go to we went to the Alliance Open House last month where it was just three or four hundred retailers and it was Alliance, you know, hosting them and and everything. So we were able to set up and show the game to a bunch of people and talk to a bunch of people. Um, and, you know, we met people that, that carried the game and for some reason didn't sell and we tried to give them tips on how to do it. We've people that have it but they don't know how to pitch it. And then we've met people that never even heard of it and are people that love it and they, you know, they sell the crap out of it because they know how to pitch it right. But our game is one that the box is a little deceiving. It's a little small for what all is in it. It's pretty much packed to the to the gills with stuff. So some people will look at it and see the price tag and not even pick it up. But if you pick it up, you feel it and it's like five pounds and you're like, oh, there's a lot of stuff in here. I wonder what's going on. So it's a game where if, if you can get to a retailer and tell them, you know, open up a display copy and show people, then it sells really easily. Like we sell really well in the booth. Um, so we have like a, a display copy program where they can get a discounted copy of the game and we'll send it to them so that they can do that because I know that it's costly. Game store owners don't make millions of dollars. So, you know, we want to help them sell the game. But the big issue with retail stores is that the industry is a little strange. It operates differently from a lot of other industries because it's a distributor. You sell to a distributor, and then a distributor sells to the game stores, and that's how most of the industry works. And there are so many of the game stores are owned by a person that owns one game store, and that's way different from like the supermarket industry where you know 90% of the supermarket industry is you know, Meyer, Kroger, Albertsons, Walmart, etc. Whereas this is like there it's hard to find a game store that there's more than eight of in a chain and most of them are one. Probably eighty percent of the industry is single owner. You know, they own one place. So but I mean that's and it's hard to figure out, like I said, where you get your marketing dollar. We were very fortunate with Heroes one of them when we released at Gen Con, we were the number one game on the BGG buzz list for three mm-hmm. out of four games at Gen Con. So we sold out to distributors in an hour the rest of our units from that print run. Nice. So we had to turn around and organize a, a reprint like immediately. But that again was fortunate marketing that we were able to release at the right time and get all that buzz. But if we didn't get that buzz, I mean, that it would have been a much slower start coming out of the gate. It didn't matter how great the game was. There are hundreds of games that come out every month and it's easy to get lost in the shuffle. So Very, very interesting stuff. Um, I want to go to Gavin. Uh, I know... You're going to be at Essen, and you're in Hall 7, uh, and you're J106. Did I get that yes. right? Yeah. Uh, so Roxley's going to be there. Very exciting. You, Nick was just mentioning having a presence at different cons and at these different events with distributors and fulfillment. Um, tell us, why are you going to Essen, and what are you hoping – what would a successful Essen look to you? Well, I hope – well, we were pretty conservative with our numbers. I mean – I wanted to break even. If we sell out, we for sh- we over break even. But to, for two of us to go, because I'm bringing Paul Saxberg, 
because he's an awesome, awesome, uh, awesome sales guy. Yeah, he's an awesome sales guy. Awesome. And he's a great supporter of our show, so we really so, appreciate Paul. Um, so he's coming with me to you know pitch pitch games to customers and explain how they work and why they're awesome and why they should buy them. Um, and I'm going to be there as well. Um, you know, doing the transactions and also talking to people, obviously. And so we have our own booth, um, and uh, we have this big, huge display. Like I went probably a little overboard, like with the we. There's like this giant Roxy logo, and then the graphics on the sides are like these big banners hanging down. Let's say Roxy, and so there's a going to be a giant rooster in Hall <laughs> yeah. Seven. I'll wear a giant rooster costume, please. Oh yeah. That would be awesome. That would so, be awesome. It's like the objective was kind of like R and D. Like, I just want to break even. You know, we just want to break even. Sure. Uh, put out the feelers. How sh- you know? How should we try to sell these games? And how you know? What should we do next time? It's almost like go to we don't want to fail, us. but we don't, we want we want to figure out a plan for next time through experience, I guess. And, and just real quick, are you looking to connect with? European publishers, finding partners, any of that kind of stuff? Is that? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know the direction we want to take with all that. Like, we, we have Fair. some pretty strong uh, connections with some existing ones sure. um, that we're, we're, we're still looking at, but we haven't made any commitments yet, and we probably should. Um, but I want to make sure that it's the like I don't want to be attracted to shiny objects. Sure. Um, I don't want to make a mistake. You know, at some point that becomes the mistake, right? Yeah, Not doing anything. Be. So <laughs> something eventually has to happen. But I feel like I've been so swamped that I haven't been able to uh, become educated enough to really make that decision. You know, and I don't really know enough of them. So this will be a good opportunity to sort of shake some hands and stuff and, you know, uh, meet some people. So there's there's a couple different options that we're potentially looking at with the European market especially, um, but we haven't made any decisions yet. Well, but we have been approached, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've been reading all about that, which is great to hear. Um, for those of you who don't know, Paul Saxberg actually is the one who came up with the name Meeple Syrup. Uh, many, many, and the many. the logo was by Gavin. Gavin. Gavin did the logo. Thanks very much. Um, so we love these guys to death. And we'd have shows with them every week if, uh, if we could. But um, next question is our last question, actually. Um, not our last question for the whole show, but my last question to Nick. Nick, I just want to know, uh, from your perspective, if there was somebody who wanted to get in developing games and they're not doing it yet, What's your advice to them? What should they do? How should they do this? How do they do this as a job? Huh, well, I can't say I've ever heard of anyone who is desiring to become a developer that hasn't done it yet. You usually have designers that are wanting to design their first game or have a couple of games and they're wanting to get one published, and it's it's probably pretty probable that a good 30% of those people should be developers or should play the development role for somebody else um, just as a new set of eyes. But as a developer, I mean, in order for you to get a job as a developer, man, I really don't... I would say that you should be helping people develop their games. So I would go to a local game meetup and watch people, you know, play... 
their games or play their games and see if you can give them useful feedback and see if... Because somebody... It, it, almost all designers are going to need a good developer, and if they recognize that quality in you and you feel the same way about them, you should grab onto them and help them finish that game and, and request go on from there. Yeah. And then, yeah, you request a co-design credit from them on the game and do that with them or with anybody else that will let you do it. And honestly, I think there's a shortage of developers because they're not getting credit, they often don't get any money, and and it's just... It, it's it's not thankless. It's not a thankless job, but it's often you know underappreciated in the industry. I mean, if you want to be a developer, I guess become a publisher because that's a lot of what you know a publisher does. But I mean, right now, honestly, action phase, we have so much stuff on our plate that we could use a, a really good developer. We could use somebody that we hand these prototypes to and that we can trust to say, yeah, I can work on this and and, and fix it, or yeah, this game doesn't work at all. I've tried it and it doesn't really work. It's not going in the direction that we want. And it's really hard to find somebody that wants to do that. And it's because a lot of people are in the industry to get credit or to you know say, oh, I designed this game and it's and people love it. I mean. People don't get the same appreciation out of, oh, I developed this game and people love it. I mean, I feel that way when somebody comes up and tells Travis that he loved, that they love Infamy. I think it's great. And I know that when that when he showed up to, to Gen Con with that game, that like it would not have been anywhere near as good if we didn't spend three months developing it together. Um, so, yeah, I would say if you're someone that's looking to get into development, just do it because you're not going to be able to apply to some company without a resume. Um if you want, there are, and I've read, uh, I believe that Stegmeyer posted something a month or so ago about the first like development employee that he hired, and it was basically somebody that was willing to go through his rules and read it and ask questions and then play the game and give him feedback and so on. And he did that for like two years or something, I think was what it said in the yep. story, and that yeah, he was the first was person crazy. that they hired to do that. So, I mean, that's a great way to do it. Because you don't find those campaigns that you read the rule book and it's a mess. Or you know you play the game. There's a print. There's a free print and play, and you play it, and it needs work. And you come back to them and you tell them. I mean, I know that. I bet Stegmeyer, you know, wishes that he had you know more developers on Euphoria because you know he's re-released all of the the contacts or whatever they are cards in the game, and like 33 of the 36 or something have new text. So you know, wow. it's clear that this person probably had they jumped on board before would have been able to help him find all those things, but. You just you know, designers, a like I said, it's the rule book issue. You you see a game and you just don't see what's wrong with it anymore a lot, or you've accepted it as it is. You don't know that people have a problem with it, and you know it's just some people aren't good at it, or they want to move on to the next thing. There's just lots of reasons. I mean, I don't blame a designer for not having a perfect game. I mean, that's I think you need at least two people to make a game, you know, great. So that would be my answer for how you become a developer, as elaborate <laughs> as it was. It's a good answer, sir. So to to take that question to to go travel linear linearly on that question to Gavin, once you got your foot in the door, um, tips uh, as a as a developer in interacting with a designer or interacting with a publisher or maybe pitfalls to be aware of. Um, your final question: What what do you what do you think? Sorry to um, tips for Just how to. I, I don't know. There, you're going to be. There's obviously a lot of communication as a developer, and you're working mm -hmm. back and forth. And especially, y'all were talking earlier about how a lot of times, you know, that game is your baby. That game is is something yeah. that you you want to grow and foster as a designer. Um, how how can a developer communicate clearly with you, and and how can y'all work together as a team and and try and work positively together? 
Hmm, that's 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 a hard one because I mean I've worked like when when I was developing Steampunk Rally with Oren, you know, we would have like <laughs> full-on arguments, like you know, leaving like sort of pissed off, right? <laughs> and seriously, but it just shows. So sometimes that can show how passionate you are about something. Absolutely, right? like, man. I, you know, we fought, but. It's because I want the game to be good, and so, so do you, right? And we're disagreeing about something. Um, so, you know, getting along, I don't necessarily think uh, is... I think that sometimes not fighting back um, is, is something that a lot of um, designers suffer from when they, you know, well, you know, the publisher, they know what they're doing, and I don't necessarily agree... Like if you've been like trust your trust your gut, trust yourself, trust your playtesting, and if you've playtested that baby enough, like you know, because that is development is labor. So if you've playtested that thing enough and you feel strongly that it, this is the way it should work, and I have a logical opinion of why it should work that way, then you, I believe you should fight for it, especially if your name is on the game, right? So, um, yeah, and I, I don't think that in terms of um, in terms of you know, development, uh, I don't think that enough designers are giving up to people they know, other designers they know, giving up um, the sole credit in order to get somebody that's better a developer than them as a co-design. Like, I'm totally, I'm totally into that. And if you're, you gotta, if you want to be successful, you gotta put your ego aside and say, what is the best thing for the game? Okay, I'm I'm stuck. Mm. Maybe I I could either shelf it and come back to it in a year. May I probably a lot of the time I won't do that. Or somebody else like is pretty into this game. Another designer that I meet with on a weekly basis. What does he think? Does he want like? Would he be interested like? And then lay out your expectations. Like okay, I'm gonna put you as a co-designer on this. If da 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 da. You know like this is my expectation. And if those are expectations aren't met. As a co-design, like, so I'm still sort of steering the ship, but you can have co-design if you help me bring this baby to completion. And I don't think enough designers are willing to sort of give up that, and I think a lot of the time it's just ego. Um, I don't think they're willing to give that up, mm -hmm. and I think they should. Because yeah. if it's, if it's if, what's better, like, your name besides somebody else's or the game not existing? Totally, right. totally. Or not being as good as it should be. Yep, yep. Well, parts. great. Great advice. I love the passion, Gavin. You know we love you on the show for that. Uh, maybe we'll be able to convince you to stick around for the after show. I just want to say thanks to our guests, uh, both Gavin and Nick, for being on the show. I can't believe how fast the time went by. Uh, really appreciate uh, you both uh, and getting to chat with you on the show, but even outside of the show, it's just always a treat for me. I love it. Uh, I want to give a plug for upcoming episode. We have Chevy Dodd uh, coming on next week, and we're, I will be live at Essen, and uh, we'll we'll probably be talking some stuff about Essen. And if you don't know some of the games that you can find on Essen, I would recommend to check out the Nerd Syrup, that's right, the Nerd Nighters Meet the Meeple Syrup, Nerd Syrup video of uh, an Essen preview that I just shot on the weekend with Stephanie Straw. Uh, you can find that on the Meeple Syrup channel. And uh, also, I'm trying to think what else I need to plug. Oh, the Meeple Syrup Winter uh, Camp. Uh, we're going to have a, a small invite-only 
Um, and it's not just for designers, but it's a family-friendly board game event. Uh, if you're interested in coming, uh, it's going to be very limited space, but the whole idea is that we're actually going to go to a camp that's about 30 minutes from my house. Uh, it's actually the camp that Justin Bieber used to go to as a kid. Oh, yeah. Oh. Selling feature right there. Mm. Uh, the Biebs. Uh, maybe he'll swing by. I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if he's into board games. But, I'm out. Uh, but I'm I, I, no, no, don't be out. Uh, but uh, the guy that I'm helping run it with has uh, always been involved with this camp, knows it well, um, Eli Gingrich, uh, if you're watching. Um, and so, yeah, so the whole idea is we're going to invite uh, a variety of our friends to come on down. Some will be reviewers, some are publishers, some are designers, some are just uh, our family, our friends, and we're going to play games. Uh, there will be a room designated for designers um, the meals will all be taken care of, and uh, there'll be lots of fun snow activities outside. We'll have skating, we'll have tobogganing, we'll have a, a fire outside in the snow, um, all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested, um, what I'm going to... Oh, and my mom is the cook, so it's going to be awesome. So good, good food. I'm telling you, my mom is actually a world-renowned chef. She actually trained in cooking schools around the world and ran a bunch of restaurants and catering companies. And uh, I thought I, I better talk my mom into it. And my mom might be moving out to the Dominican Republic, so i got to get some home cooking in before she moves away. Um, so, yeah, so all that to say, it's going to be awesome. We're going to start this year and try to grow it. Uh, we're going to start small, so it's a real hard cap. Very few people that um, we're going to have. So if you're interested, private message, uh, send or I or the Meeple Syrup email, get to us. We're opening it up, actually, for sales uh, tomorrow. And um, so the early bird rate will start tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, so all that to plug uh, the, the Meeple Syrup uh, Winter Camp. And that will be happening January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, uh, which is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday uh, here in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. So uh, with that, uh, Sen, you uh, ready with our info and all that fun stuff? Uh, he's shaking his head no, so I'm just going to... Here, why don't I give a plug for some upcoming episodes? Uh, October 14th, I'll be in Seattle. Um, maybe I can talk the Mox people into letting me film live from there, but we're going to be talking Dice Dice Baby. That's right, we're going to have Chris Leader on, um, the designer of Roll For It, and uh, I don't know who else is on that episode yet, but it's going to be a fun one. And then October 21st, we have Chad Krizan from uh, BGG, and we have Paul Sang, from, uh, the designer of Outer Outer Earth. Am I saying that right? Thank you. Um, who is a Toronto designer. Um, both um, kind of newer designers, and we're going to pick their brains about being a new designer and especially um, how to promote yourself when you're a new designer, how to network, how to connect, because I think both of them have done a phenomenal job. And then October 28th, the end of the month, a uh, real fun thing. We have a maple syrup room at Sasquatch. So um, Sasquatch is a, a smaller con in Seattle, and I will be filming live, maybe get uh, some preview videos of, in more detail of new Essen releases. Maybe some designers will be there and some publishers, and we'll get to pick their brains and talk to them. So uh, with that, I think I'm going to stop stalling and hope that we have uh, something, and if we don't, then we can just add it later. Well, let's see if it works right now. Uh...
if if you don't know, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us at Maple Syrup. You can find our website that's MapleSyrupShow.com. You can find us on Facebook if you just search Maple Syrup. Uh, uh, you can uh, find our guests on Twitter, on Facebook, all those fun places. Uh, again, I want to shout out Roxley and Action Phase Games. Check out their games, support them, love them. They're awesome. Uh, if you're a designer, maybe you get the opportunity to show them a game down the road. Uh, we want to encourage our uh, viewers to keep making great games. We look forward to playing your game soon. Have a good night.